Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hey listeners. I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Oteil Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, join the Fab Faux, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. Hi friends, welcome to the Helping Friendly Podcast. This is episode 119, Trey's Guitar Rig, and this is Matt here. I'm joined by Jonathan this evening. How's it going, Jonathan? Hey, uh, it's going great. And we are also joined by special guest Ryan Chechery, um, better known as Trey's Guitar Rig on Twitter and the founder of the Trey'sGuitarRig.com website. Hey Ryan, how's it going tonight? Great, thanks very much for having me. 
Yeah, no problem. We're uh, we're glad to have you on. Uh, a lot of people may have um, seen Ryan's tweets and his posts on the website, doing an amazing job over the um, the last year or two, uh, kind of documenting um, Trey's advancements to his guitar rig um, that he's been making. Uh, if you follow guitar stuff, you know Trey's been doing making a lot of changes in the past two years, um, way more than he had uh, in, in a lot of the years leading up to it. Um, so it's been really cool to follow along with uh, Ryan's updates. Uh, if you're a gearhead, um, I'm a gearhead. I know there's a lot of gearheads out there uh, to, to kind of see uh, the, what Trey's adding and removing from his rig with, with every tour. And then um, also, uh, Ryan has done some cool things on Twitter where he's been um, kind of putting some clips up and, uh, you know, pointing people towards what Trey is doing with his effects pedals that are generating certain sounds. So we've got a really cool episode here for you. Um, we'll kind of walk through some of the examples of what Trey does uh, with effects. But um, to start out, uh, I want to just get a little bit, bit of, um, of background. Um, Ryan, if you can just kind of tell us um, a little bit about yourself and um, what led you to the creation of the Trey's Guitar Rig uh, website and Twitter account. Sure. Yeah. Love to. Um, yeah, I, um, I've been seeing fish for about 20, just over 20 years. Um, sometimes, you know, more seriously than others, of course, like a lot of people. Um and, uh, you know, I've, I've kind of been trying to, ever since I first saw them, kind of nail down the sound. And uh, so, you know, after I saw my first show, I was determined to see if I could if I could figure out a way to make that, you know, make that sound myself. And, and I started scouring the Internet for for information about how how Trey's rig worked. And uh, this was 1996. And at the time, there were a few sort of static snapshots of of what Trey's rig looked like. Um, there were a couple of websites that were doing it. Uh, you'd see a couple of pictures here and there of how it worked. Um, but there wasn't really a comprehensive resource. So, you know, you'd kind of put together a little bit here and a little bit there. But I always kind of wanted a uh, – I wanted there to be a resource out there so that you could kind of – know what he was doing at any given time and then go back and sort of listen to different shows and compare tones based on what was, you know, what kind of different stuff he was using. And, uh, so I kind of just created the website that I, I wish existed when I, when I was 16 years old, you know, that's the perfect reason to do any website is you can't find it. So you made it. Exactly. Um, so <laughs> right. I, I gather from that you're a player, guitar player. Mm-hmm. Um, and were you, uh, do you play in bands or are you a, uh, you know, living room player or some combination thereof? Yeah, it's, it's some combination thereof. I was in, um, you know, I played in high school in a couple of bands. And then when I was in college, I played for college in the few years afterwards, I played pretty seriously in a band called Cannonball Coming. Um, and, uh, we had a lot of fun. We played around Charlottesville, Virginia area. And, you know, we, we, we got out a little bit out of town and played a little bit out of town. Uh, we wrote some songs. It was very, very jam band inspired, a lot of fish influence. Uh, a lot of fish fans were coming to our shows and, and dead fans. So we were playing a lot of that music, doing a lot of covers. Um, and then, you know, a couple other bands after that now, mostly living room. Um, but, um, uh, I live out in Boulder, Colorado 
and uh, there's a big bluegrass jam scene. So I do, I, I, you know, pop around to a lot of the, the different bluegrass jams around town and do a lot of that stuff now, which is, which is also great. I don't use a whammy pedal too often with the bluegrass jam. So, huh? You really can't, unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> but that's great. Um, what, you mentioned you've started seeing them a little over 20 years ago. Uh, what was your first show? First show was October 22nd, 1996 at Madison Square Garden. And, cool. uh, yeah, it was an unbelievable show. I, I'd been listening to them at that point for maybe a year or so. Um, and at that show, uh, they brought out Buddy Miles and Merle Saunders to play Watchtower for the encore. Um, and you, you can imagine, you know, a brand new fan. I've been really eager to see them. My brother took me to the show. He was, a, you know, he had seen the 95 new year's run at the garden. We grew up right outside of New York city. And, uh, and so he had kind of been getting me into the band. I had a couple of the albums. I had heard a bunch of, you know, there were a bunch of tapes floating around, you know, the old Max L tapes we, we would collect. And, uh, and so I was really excited for the first show. And then of course to have these two legendary, uh, legendary players, Miles and Saunders come out. It was just, it was, it was something else. I was, I was floored, hooked. Yeah. That's a, that's a hell of a first show. It was. Yeah. And that wound up being, you know, the garden was my, was my home venue for, for fish. They played, uh, Nassau Coliseum a few times as well. And I saw them there a few times, but I, I mean, all those new year's runs at the garden, uh, you know, probably 20 something, I'm guessing somewhere in the twenties, you know, shows that I saw there and just one better than the next. It was just, it was a great place to see fish and it was a quick, you know, 40 minute train ride from, from my folks house out on Long Island. So it was just, it was a lot of fun. At a certain point you decided to, um, to create this website. Was there any, you know, particular event or something that happened that kind of, uh, inspired you to, to really, um, get going on it? Well, it's a couple of things. So I, I wanted to do it for so long. And I kept talking to my brother about, um, kept telling my brother, was my sort of, uh, he's really good with, uh, web stuff. And he, he set up a few different websites for me over the years. Uh, and, uh, I, I told him, you know, we got to get Trey's guitar We got to get that domain because we're going to do this at some point. And, and we would always joke about it. And then finally, a couple of years ago, we actually bought it. And then, um, I had been working at, I'm an attorney during the, during the day when I'm not researching Trey's gear. Um, and, uh, I had just, uh, I was at a law firm for five years in Washington and I was working kind of round the clock hours as, as, as many attorneys do right after, right after finishing law school. And, uh, and so I bought the page then, but I was sitting on it because I didn't have a second to spare to work on it. And, uh, and then when I moved out to Boulder and I got a, you know, a little bit more of a reasonably paced job, I had a little bit more time on my hands and I said, well, how, how can I, now would be a good time to make this happen. And on top of that, the, um, starting in the 3.0 era, the band started releasing all this great HD video, uh, of, of, you know, they would pick a song from a given night and release, a you know, a Pro shot, multi-camera angle, HD video of it, uh, and then Big of course you know, those. Oh, they're great! And then you've got the live streams uh, that you can watch that are coming out. And then there was also a lot of between Instagram and also Fish.com. There's a lot of uh, great high-resolution photography out there. So I basically 
every time I would watch these streams, I would always find myself waiting for that one shot when it's passing between Trey and Paige, and you could see what's next to Trey on his rack, you know? Yeah, what's on that table tonight, you know? Yeah, exactly, or there's this camera is sweeping up past Trey's feet over to Mike and Fishman, and I, you know, I pause it, and I start looking around, and you're looking at these little digitized images of, maybe you can, you know, screenshot it and zoom in, and so I started doing all that kind of stuff, and and really trying to figure it out that that's without that stuff, I couldn't have gotten it started. And, and, and that's, you know, it's a reason why, unfortunately, a lot of the, you know, people are always asking me about the nineties rig and, you know, the mid nineties stuff and what he was using during that era. There's a lot of, there's some information out there about that, but there's not nearly as much, uh, visual documentation. And that's again, sort of why I wanted to start this. Now I wanted to have just sort of a clearinghouse, whereas you want to know what was happening in 2013. Here it is. And to the extent possible, you know, I'm accumulating, you know, various different books and photo collections and this and that. And I'd really like to go back and, and try to piece together some of those tours from some of those old photographs. I just actually, I had a copy of the fish book forever ago, you know, when I was in college and I just ordered another copy, um, because there's some good photos in there of, uh, rig stuff. So I'm going to be going through there and trying to pull out some, some information as well. Yeah. I'm a, uh, low tech guitar player myself, but I do have an, you know, a casual interest in, in reading up on these things. And as a dead fan i've done that over the years looking at you know jerry's guitars and various elements of his rig and it would be great and i really look forward to seeing this you know this expanded historical segment of of your site because you know there is no single spot as you said that has all of this historical information so um not only do i want to encourage you to keep at that but hopefully anybody else out there who's got information Let's uh, maybe they should send it to you, and uh, so we can get it all in one place. You know what? I, I wrote down uh, on my my screen. I've got my computer open in front of me, and I wrote just a note to myself that says "request old photos!" exclamation point. So, so I wanted to make the same note. If there's anyone listening who has any uh, of that stuff, please tweet it at me or, or send it to me. I'm at Trey's Guitar Rig or Trey's Guitar Rig at gmail.com. You can find me at the website, Trey's Guitar all that, all that good stuff that you mentioned earlier. But I, I would love to see that stuff. And, and I looked at a lot of the Jerry stuff too. And there, there's a couple of, of pretty good sites that walk through um, that stuff, but it, it's a little bit difficult. A lot of times if you, you know, if you do a Google image search or something, you find a picture of Jerry and you're trying to age him kind of based on how much gray is in his hair. You know, you don't know exactly, it's hard to know exactly when each thing comes from, which is why I kind of wanted to hammer down, you know, a date for each picture and say, this is from, you know, right. summer, summer tour 2017. Now, you know, we know for sure. And there's, you know, sort of a one-stop shop to, to get all that information. Another challenge with Jerry's stuff is that, you know, there's so much custom and modded gear on the stage at any given time. You know, even if you could figure out when it is, it's hard to know exactly what he's what he's messing with. Definitely. Well, that and as, uh, um, you know, Thoughts on the Dead likes to point out, there was usually haphazard stacks of speakers and amps and shit laying around all the pl- all the time. So it's it's almost like as opposed to Trey's very, very kind of clean 
equipment, you know, layout, uh, you look at Jerry sometimes and it's like, what's, what's even working there? <laughs> hey, precarious Lee is the guy's name and he needs a job to, and it, his job is to stack things in whatever way he feels appropriate. <laughs> Good old Big shout out to thoughts on the thoughts on the dead. I love that Twitter account. Yes. And, and precarious precarious. We know you're out there listening. Uh, so, so hi to precarious, but, um, al- along the lines of sources, I wanted to ask you a question here and I, I understand if you can't, uh, answer this because we, we, we don't want you to divulge anything that you can't. Um, it seems at a certain point, like you may have gotten a little bit of inside information. Is, is there anything that you can speak to as far as, uh, connections that you've been able to make? Um, you know, I'll, I'll just say I was, I was, a, I was actually, I spent a little bit of time before law school as a, you know, a bit of a journalist. Uh, I never got too seriously into it, but I spent a couple of years working in and around that area. And, uh, you know, I, I still study, I still study that stuff quite a bit. And, and, uh, I think there's good and bad reasons to keep sources anonymous. And I think in some situations it's, it's, it's not responsible to keep sources anonymous, but in my situation, I don't think anybody is harmed by it. Uh, and, uh, that was, that was a request. I were, you know, I, I, I put a lot of time into the site and then I started reaching out and trying to find people who were interested in talking to me about it. And, uh, to their great credit, um, of, of, you know, these individuals, uh, they want the credit to be with, uh, the members of the band and, and they don't want to take any of that spotlight away. And so I respect that and, uh, and, uh, agreed to, to work with them on an anonymous basis. I, I think we can all agree with that. Um, but we'll, we'll thank them anonymously as well absolutely i I thank them personally very regularly (laughs) (laughs) excellent well we'll leave it at that and uh, allow you to keep your sources anonymous um so moving on to uh trey's rig itself um before we get into some of the the nuts and bolts of how things work today um let's talk a little bit about um kind of Trey's overall approach and how things have evolved um over time. So maybe Ryan, you could just kind of walk us through um if there's major kind of you know, we don't have to go through year by year, but if there's kind of major phases to um Trey's rig that um that are worth calling out uh over over the career. You know, like I said, the the, the earliest stuff is a little bit more opaque. Um I, I tend to think of, for, for me, the thing that has always kind of driven how I think about the rig is based on amplification and what particular amplifier he's using at any given moment. Um, for a lot of the, uh, I know for a lot of late 80s and early 90s stuff, that Mesa Boogie Mark III was the main amplifier that has its own various gain stages, although I'm sure there were tube screamers involved at some points during that period as well. Um that there there was also a period where there was a groove tubes amp being used and that's a particularly opaque period that I don't know a lot about that I'd like to do a little bit more research on but I think of the main driving sort of engines behind the rig as being the boogie for a long time and then sometime in the mid to late mid 90s the the lux reverb uh, came along the old fender blackface amplifier and he was using two of those uh, late 60s deluxe reverbs and that went on through 2.0. In fact, I believe that the Co- Coventry rig was the uh, deluxe reverb into the Bruno 2x12 cabinets. And then when he when they came back for uh, Hampton 2009 and following, 
they were back. He was back to the Mesa Boogie and the uh, those Languedoc two by twelve cabinets, those wooden cabinets, and stuck with that for a bit in really a very. It was a very small rig. It was off. Sometimes it was one of the two by twelves and the boogie standing on its side. And compared to what's out there now, it was a very small rig. And then he started working his way through amplifiers over the course of the really last five years or so. And there was the so we went from the boogie and then the Bogner Shiva started coming in as maybe a backup. And then it was the main amplifier. And then there was a uh, the Marshall JTM. 45 HW for a brief stretch. And then the deluxe reverb was back for a brief stretch, the boogie here and there. And now they're into this, the comet phase and, and these, these, uh, comet train wreck, uh, 60 amplifiers. And that's usually, I mean, especially if you've watched him change the rig over the last five years or so, you basically see a lot of consistency, a lot these are very different amplifiers. For the most part, he's, he, he manages to get a pretty consistent tone out of them. And the rest of the tone stack, with a few minor changes, has pretty much been consistent. I mean, the the, the tone stack has generally been the two tube screamers, you know, in front of the amplifier. I mean, you have the two tube screamers. The Ross compressor has been sort of coming and going, and I know that's kind of something that people have always associated with Trey, and people consider to be a huge aspect of his tone. I'm I'm not I'm not sure it's as important as many people think it is, but but those three, and then. Over the last few years, you saw this H and K uh, tube factor come in, which was like another tube uh, gain stage preamplifier gain stage gain stage, and then more recently that was replaced by the uh, Klon Centaur, uh, which has been kind of in and out. My understanding is that right now on Trade Tour, the Klon Centaur is back. Um, so for the most part, you're seeing, you, you know, you could argue that you're really seeing more consistency than difference. But but when I think about the evolution of the rig over time, I tend to think about which amplifier is pushing sound to the speakers and everything else kind of flowing down from there. Wow. You know, it, Trey is so unlike a lot of guitar players in that, you know, he's, he's really hung on to the same now a few guitars, but for the longest time, just one guitar. So, you know, whereas Jerry, you could say, well, let's talk about guitars. Those mark eras quite handily. Trey is really about the speakers. Um, you mentioned a Somewhere in that chronology, some Languedoc speakers. Are those the uh, wood cabinet speakers that he had out there? They were. Yeah. You know, the, okay. So, you know, I, I thought those were hard truckers because I never got close and nobody ever told me otherwise. But um, Yeah, those look just oh. like old. Uh, those look like just the old uh, hard trucker speakers that Jerry used to use and uh, and many others have as well. And they brought uh, them back. They start, you know, we're doing some uh, semi-commercially in the in earlier this century for a bit. I don't know that they're doing it now. But. Oh, yeah. You can still buy hard trucker speakers. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. They're beautiful. Um, they are beautiful. Yeah. Glenn at hard truckers is, uh, he runs the show over there and I've, I've, uh, I know him a little bit and he's been, yeah, he, he builds beautiful gear. Um, yeah, the, uh, so those speakers were built by Paul, uh, way back in the day. I think, it, you know, maybe when Trey was living with Paul in the, in the eighties, a long time ago. Wow. Um, and if you see, you can see pictures of them, uh, if you look up, I think I have some on the site somewhere, but maybe under the amplifier section, you can see pictures of those speakers looking really new when the band is really young. Um, and they're, they're like these beautiful, pristine hardwood. And then over the years, they just got 
really, really hammered from from road use. I mean, they were used for a lot of years. I'm just scrolling through the site. I've got you know pictures of them in '94 with the rig. I mean, those things were on stage forever. Um, they were at some point they were replaced with that Bruno cab, but the, those those speakers kind of always came back. And then in the uh, in the last five years or so. Uh, they had those speaker, Trey had those speakers covered in black Tolex. Um, I think that happened. Let's see. Was it, it was, it was before fare thee well, sometime, sometime in there, 2013 or so. Um, they had those speakers covered in black Tolex, I assume to protect them from all the, the beatings they were getting on the road. So then for a while you saw these two, two by 12, um, Tolex covered speakers back there. Those, those, those are those same Languedoc cabinets. Um, that Trey had been playing for a long time. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then, um, interestingly, I mean, in recent years, he switched uh, in the last really few months, he switched over to these Comet Ambicabs. And it's a, it's really a major change um, in what he has going on up there. And just, you know, sort of further evidence of the, the way that they've, he's really moved this to a, a very high fi kind of, kind of rig over the last few years. I mean, you, you alluded to this earlier they, they've spent a lot of time really dialing in the sound, really dialing in the exact devices they want to use to achieve those sounds. And the, and the Ambicab is just the latest, um, uh, the latest in that evolution. That's a very, it's a very unique speaker system that actually is, it's designed basically most for the, for most guitar players would run, all their time-based effects like delay and reverb before it gets to the speaker. So the speakers are reflecting that delay and reverb in the signal that they produce. What the Ambicab does is that it keeps two separate sets of speakers, one that gets just a clean signal and one that basically has an effects loop that runs out to the time-based effects. So I think the concern that Trey had was that he was having that the, the time-based effects like reverb and delay were muddying his signal in the, in the speakers overall. So in other words, he was happy to have the signal split out into two different speakers so that one set of speakers is not getting the muddied effect of the time-based uh, effects and the other speaker is. So it, it, it gives it an overall, I think, tighter and cleaner, especially in the rhythm tones, um, I think is what he was going for there. Cool. I, you know, Kimok takes care of that problem by just unplugging everything he's not using at any given time. Right. <laughs> takes a little stage time, though. Yeah. So, yeah. I, so I want to talk about a couple of things that you just went through. Um, you know, I want to make sure that uh, everybody that's listening that is not a guitar player or or gearhead like us um, has an understanding of what's going on there. Um, for starters, maybe you can explain to the the listeners why trey might want to change his uh, amp up over time how that would affect the sound um particularly you know because he's using tube amps sure i mean there's a lot of reasons why he might want to do that I, i've i tried to think about this a lot because there's a lot of differences in the kinds of amplification he's used over the years. And it's almost, I mean, no matter what amplifier Trey plugs into, he's going to sound like Trey, you know, I mean, that's his fingers, you know, that he plays how he plays and he sounds how he sounds, but obviously, you know, there's, you know, there's more to it than that. And, you know, he, so he has this like Mesa boogie Mark three that he played through for years 
on and off really for 25, 20 years on and off. Um, and that amplifier is popular among heavy metal guitar players. That's like a very high headroom. Uh, when I say high headroom, that means you can really crank the volume up and still maintain a clean, tight tone. Um, meaning, whereas, with, meaning without it getting distorted. Right. right, without it distorting. So if you play, like, for example, uh, by comparison, the other amplifier he plays, he's played with, with a lot of frequency over the last you know, 20 years or so, is this the Blackface Deluxe Reverb that I mentioned earlier. Now, that amplifier, when you turn the volume beyond five or so, the amplifier starts to naturally break up because the tubes are no longer capable of delivering that power cleanly. Um, this was sort of an accident of design that I think wound up, you know, becoming, you know, a benefit over the years, right? The players quite, sought out this distortion. It's quite desirable for certain applications. Right, exactly. But, but wasn't necessarily, was more of a bug than a feature probably when it was first designed. Right. Right. So, so, you know, that, that deluxe reverb, I love the tone out of that amplifier, um, but at very when you push it really hard, it starts to get kind of loose and liquid, and the notes maybe like slur into each other a little bit, and it starts to just kind of break up and distort. And that's great as like if you're looking for that kind of vintage bluesy sound. Um, you know, for for some of what Trey does, that seems like it wouldn't be the right sound that he was looking for, right? Because he's looking for a lot of precision. He plays with a lot of precision, almost that like surgical, you know, precision of, you know, a lot of notes in a row and wants everyone to be very clear. Um, the Mesa Boogie seems to be a lot perhaps better suited to that. I think, I, you know, I think that the, 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 the downside, I guess, of the Mesa Boogie is that, uh, you know, that's like a big 75 watt or 100 watt amplifier. Um, it can sound maybe a little bit more sterile than some of those more vintage, you know, bluesy amps like the deluxe reverb. It doesn't have that sort of natural, um, that natural, beautiful distortion that happens when you, when you crank up a tube amplifier, it's, it's a different sound. It's, it, it's its own thing. They're both fantastic amplifiers, but they have a little bit of a different quality. I, I feel like he's sort of landed on what he's landed on is a little bit of a, a little bit of a middle ground in that he, he has, so the deluxe reverb is a 22 watt amplifier that has a, both a tube rectifier and tube and, and power tube and two power tubes. Uh, the Mesa boogie has four power tubes and a solid state rectifier, which means that the, the rectifier is transistors rather than tubes, which means it can handle that higher volume without starting to slur and distort. Um, what he settled on is the 60 watt comet train rack, which is sort of in between in the wattage it has uh, EL34 tubes, which are a little bit more associated with the English kind of Marshall sound, um, and it is tube rectified. So it's, it stays in the all-tube uh, sort of department, but a little bit more headroom. So you get that nice, juicy, creamy distortion, um, and you also have the ability to sort of track those fast passages of notes without sort of starting to get that slur and kind of, uh, and kind of blur between the notes. So, and then I guess the other thing to, to point out there is that um, these changes, you know, moving from something like the Mesa Boogie, which does have so much clean headroom, um, you know, through to the Fender Deluxes, which are going to break up a lot easier. And then the, the Comet, which is, is kind of a nice middle ground, has probably shifted his approach to kind of the, the way that he, you know, adds and removes gain. Um, 
I was thinking when you were talking about the Mesa Boogies, that probably is why he was using, you know, for so long has used two TS nines because he needs um, those. You know, the, the and I'll try not to jump into the abbreviations we're talking about. Um, yeah, that's the, the, tube screamer. The Ibanez right? tube tube screamer, which is kind of a legendary uh, guitar pedal that so many guitarists have on their their pedal board, um, because as opposed to you know, something like the, the fender where you could use a simple boost pedal to push it over the edge, uh, get it to break up. Um, the, the boogie, you probably need something that's more of a kind of traditional overdrive pedal to, to get to that place. Am I, am I thinking about that correctly? I think that's probably right. The boogie also has its own built in. So the boogie is a three channel amplifier. Unlike, I mean, when this, when this amplifier came out in the mid eighties, it was the, it was the Ferrari of amplification. There was just really not a lot that was doing this, you know, the traditional fender amps, you know, that, that deluxe reverb is a single channel. So yeah, you're right. You have, you have one volume control and you can either put it at three and get a clean tone put it at five and get sort of a furry middling tone or put it at 10 and get a ton of distortion. But there's no way to change those settings from the floor. You have to walk over the amp and change the volume. The boogie came with three pedals, one that turned the reverb on and off and two to change channels. So one went from the clean sound to the, what they called rhythm two, which was like a light crunch. And then one switched over to a whole other channel. That was the the lead channel, which was a, a super gain. It was that, that sound that Mesa Boogie kind of became known for, which is that sort of violin like sustain and that, that, clear mid-range focused uh sort of liquidy distortion sound i think we all know what that probably sounds like yeah i think that's uh, you know carlos santana yeah. sound i think you know and, exactly. and and i think i think trey trey you know uh i you know they they obviously did that that tour together years ago i think i think trey has a lot of respect for 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 carlos santana and, and his tone and so then with the um with respect to the Ross compressor um for those who don't know I mean a, a compressor is when you're talking about dynamic range compression you're essentially talking about an effect that is going to take the quietest part of a signal and it's going to boost it up to be um louder and it's going to take the loudest part of a signal and it's going to crunch it down so that it doesn't get too loud and one of the ideas you use this in guitars guitar signal chains you use it a lot in recording and um you know uh mixing sound is really so you can kind of typically so you can get a hold of the sound and you don't wind up with sounds that suddenly get way louder than you want to or subtleties like the the pick you know scraping against a string um that might get lost in the in the big mix of the band um so maybe you can talk about you know why trey and, and how trey has used that which is actually a little bit unique compared to um a lot of guitarists in terms of putting it after the 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 uh the ts9s um and also why he may have dropped that uh at, at various points yeah, so Trey is uh, the only, obviously, he is, it's a little bit unique as a player to be the rhythm and the lead guitar player in the band, particularly for a band that has a very live focus, right? So he needs it to be the case that the soundboard, when they're mixing his signal, is getting a pretty overall uniform signal from him. But part of the time, he's playing these huge, crunchy chords with uh, you know these tube screamers and distortion kicked in and other parts of the time he's playing relatively clean and lightly and gently so that's where the sort of you know i think the compression really comes in is to sort of make sure that neither of those signals 
is too far away from the other so that the light, the light and quiet stuff doesn't get lost in the mix and the big power chords don't completely overwhelm the mix. Right. So I, I think that was a big part of, of the, the compressed sound of the, of the nineties. Um, I also understand, you know, from, from talking to some people that the, you know, compressors also tend to lend, uh, a lot of sustain to a guitar signal. Um, and I, I think that for a long time, um, when Trey, particularly when Trey was playing through the Mesa Boogie amplifier, um, he wasn't, he was using the Ross compressor to make sure that the, that the guitar signal would sustain through those long sort of siren effects in, uh, you know, you enjoy myself and divided sky, those really long sustained notes. Um, the boogie, because the tube, the, the, the sort of, when it, when a tube amplifier is being pushed really hard, um, the, the tubes heat up and provide that sort of saturated, distorted sound that is so pleasing to the ear with all the kind of rich, thick harmonics. It also causes the guitar to naturally sustain a little bit more because of all those overtones. I think, you know, the thought behind having the Ross compressor in line for sustain purposes when Trey was using the, the Mesa Boogie was that because the tubes of the Mesa Boogie weren't being pushed all the way into overdrive because that amp has so much headroom, as we discussed before. Uh, you couldn't get those long uh, sustained notes without using the compressor pedal. And I think now that he's using, I think this probably would be true with the deluxe reverb as well, but now that he's using the, the Comet Trainwrecks, um, I think he can get those long sustained notes without using the compressor, which is why you've seen the compressor kind of come and go over the course of the last few tours, but most recently, I mean, the whole Baker's dozen was played without it. Oh, that's neat. So, um, I, I want to just throw in that I love the name train wreck for a, uh, amp model. That's a great name. <laughs> um, great. and then I want to ask you, um, I know we're going to get into some clips and this is the, we're going to touch on this when we do, but, um, a lot of people like myself, felt there was a significant difference in Trey's sound and, you know, at least a possible difference in his, in his layout of his rig after Fairly Well. Is there something, is there something to that? Uh, how did it change if it did? You know, I think of Fairly Well as really the kickoff of this latest round. I mean, the, really the most you know, that sort of started the most important phase of this, of this development where they've really been on, he's really been on a, a quest to get, to get to a space that he's really happy with. Um, that was when he moved the, I, I think that he spent a lot of time in the first half of that year before those fairly well shows. This is just my impression, but it seems like he spent a lot of time really trying to dial in his town and get it to some place that he <clears throat> wanted to be maybe try some new things he moved all he moved the tube screamers off the floor onto the rack behind him that was the first time we'd seen him do that started controlling all that stuff with the the midi switcher uh on the floor and since then you've seen i mean in some cases incremental in some cases there have been big leaps like new year's 2016 was a huge leap uh they really did a you know i don't want to say a ground up rebuild trey likes to keep his you know, he likes to, he likes to be pretty consistent with his gear, but some, you know, that was probably the, the most significant change you saw from one tour to the next was, was from 2016 fall to, 
2016 New Year. So I think that's right. I think that was a big part of sort of, um, I, don't, I don't know why it was, you know, I don't know why that, that sort of kicked off this, this sort of more intensive sort of tone quest era. Um, fairly Did well, I? he obviously added the, he added the Mutron, which was a, people were, were big on. Um, I'd like I'd like to posit a theory on that. Sure. Um, in addition, of course, he had to go with a Mutron or something quite close to get the sound and um, to get that sound. But it seems like, you know, he, he did spend much of the early part of that year in rehearsal, basically learning this material. And uh, it seems like he had to get that sound for those shows and was probably not just exploring Jerry's um approached playing but also his sound yeah i think that's interesting i i would be really curious to to sort of ask ask him about that and uh and and see what he had to say but that wouldn't surprise me i mean you know he he was trying to sort of get into somebody else's head into somebody else's fingers and then you know obviously jerry's sound was very unique you know uh very it was very much a voice for jerry uh absolutely and, yeah, I think I think that's an interesting theory. Well, I guess it's time for a guitar player interview, guitar player magazine interview with with Trey, done by somebody <laughs> who knows what they're talking about. Sure, so, yeah. like yourself, or yeah. we'll call Alan Paul or somebody. But uh, Gu guitar player magazine, you can find me at at Trey's Guitar Ring on Twitter. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be happy to do it. All well, right, and I think there's one other thing to the really cool thing to point out. Um, you know, particularly for the guitar players out there. Um, I think around the same time, Trey switched to um, something that's become really a trend in um, guitar rig design in the, in the past five to 10 years, which is using those looper devices um, to segment out all of the individual effects and remove them from the signal chain when they're not in use. Um, and so if you're, if you're not a hundred percent familiar with what we mean by that um, in the past, a lot of guitar players and, and Trey in particular, if you if you looked at all the pedals that Trey had sitting on the floor, you'd have a, a cable coming out of the guitar going into the first pedal, and that would go into the second pedal, into the third pedal, into the fourth pedal. And now what he has um, is a, a device that allows him to send the signal to each pedal uh, if he wants to, and if he doesn't want to, it completely bypasses it. And so as Trey himself has, has pointed out in some interviews, if he wants to, he can cut everything out of his signal chain and basically have it be his guitar going in an, into an amplifier, uh, which I thought was pretty neat because um, it kind of showed, you know, this uh, this point where Trey was maybe pivoting a little bit more towards some some of the modern trends uh, that, that we see in, in, in that rig design. Um, yeah, so I think the, yeah, I think the, the idea there is that, uh, you know, the less copper wire between the pickups and the input to the amplifier, the better. So if you, if you need to go through your various different effects in order, you know, in order to get the various different sounds you want, that's great. But then it's nice to be able to sort of pop them out of line when you don't need them. Now, when you're running your tube screamers, you're getting another gain stage, which is kind of like the equivalent. Um, it's like a more colored version of running a buffer. So a lot of other people, sometimes people will run buffers in their lines to sort of boost their signal so that as the copper sort of starts to lose, the, the signal starts to degrade over long cable runs, you can put these buffers in between that will try to restore the signal to its original kind of intensity. That That's kind of weird. Um, as a guy who 
doesn't do anything like that. That's kind of weird. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I but think it's I, for I folks who have just huge effects chains. But yeah. but I think I think Trey's solution, you know, using the the CAE switcher and having different loops with different uh, effects in it is a lot. It's a lot more elegant for certain. Yeah. Well, so we um, we want to get into some clips, and um, the idea here we've we've uh, asked Ryan for a series of examples of how we might be able to educate folks about um, what all of those effects do. So, in this this part of the the show, we're maybe going to be um, tailoring things a little bit more towards uh, those who don't play guitar or aren't familiar with what all these effects do, and maybe give you a little bit more perspective as Trey's dancing around on stage and hitting things with his feet, what he's actually doing and and what you're hearing. Um, So, let's get into that. We're going to start out um, with our first clip, and um, this is going to give us an example of um, something that Trey does with the whammy pedal. So, Ryan, maybe you can just tell us um, what it is Trey is doing with the whammy here and what people can listen for before we get into the clip. Sure, sure. So so first, I, I feel like I need to say Trey has become one of the most frequent and really most notable users of the whammy pedal out there. There are a few people that are known for using this pedal, but uh, Trey uses it very liberally. Um, I think, you know, we, we talked earlier about the Ross compressor and I think that is the, the, um, you know, people really strongly associate that pedal with Trey. Um, I, I could, I think you could make the argument that the whammy is um, as important to his, to his, um, to, to what he does, to his effects rig, to, to, to what he does as a guitar player on stage. Um, I think that's also true of another pedal we're going to talk about a little bit later on, which is the Univibe pedal. Um, these are things that people, I think, probably don't necessarily as strongly associate with him, but that are just really core to what he does. And the whammy, most people will recognize as being responsible for the that sort of whale trail sound that was that people loved and was was used a lot in the in the late 90s which kind of sounded like a sliding like a pitch bend from high to low like a you know that kind of whale song type sound uh and and that pedal is great for that um but it also does some you know it does some other things it has uh, it has a harmonizer effect on it, which allows the guitar to play. It, it takes the signal that you're playing and then adds a note on top of or below that. And I think we're going to hear a clip of that later. It also um, allows you to place the the rocker. It has a rocker on it, like a wah pedal, that you can move with your foot forward and back to make those kind of... So when you start at the top, you're up an octave, and then as you rock your foot back, you slide down. So it gives you this kind of long, sliding, downward glissando sound. And in this clip, um, which is from the uh, the simple at Baker's Dozen, which was a which was a really really amazing uh, from an effects perspective and and any other perspective, um, he's using that pedal just as an octave up pedal. So he's basically he's using it to turn the signal from his guitar into you know a signal one octave higher, and it creates this sort of pixelated um, kind of almost lo-fi sound. Um, but it's, it's really unique. It sounds, it almost sounds like it could be a synthesizer. It sounds sort of very digital and, and kind of funny and, and inorganic, but I think that's, you know, like robotic almost, but, but that's what he's going for. And it's, it's a really neat sound. And once you hear it, you'll, you'll, you'll start to recognize it because he does it a lot.
All right, so that was a little Baker's Dozen Simple, an example of the, the whammy going octave up, right? What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil Story Made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Yeah, you can you can hear that. I mean, his Trey's just you know uh, kind of hammering on the strings way up there. Um, he's just he must is he leaning on the pedal, pushing it down. I think he just has it. You uh, you actually that pedal, the rocker on that pedal will stay wherever you leave it. So I think he just rocks it all the way up and leaves it there, and then okay. uh, it it just sort of stays there. And then you know he can he'll adjust it you know, before and after. But if you look at, if you go to the, if you go to my Twitter feed, I've got some videos of these things, video clips, and you can see that he's actually playing all the way down on the neck. He's down around between the fifth and seventh frets, I think for that particular set of legs, if I recall right. Yeah. But the, okay. The yeah, pedal, but it sounds like he's way up. Like right. Cause the that, really hard bits at the very up at the top of the, wow. Right. Exactly. So the pedal is sort of slamming that octave, that octave all the way up. And it actually, the whammy pedal has the, um, it has an octave up and it has a two octave up and it also has an octave down and two octaves down. So he can get, he can really get way up there. And when you're, when you're using that pedal to, uh, go up two octaves, you know, that people, people, uh, refer to this as tracking. If it, if it, if it hits every note perfectly, then it's tracking really well. But sometimes if any little bit of distortion is introduced into the signal, or even if he, if he presses the string so hard that he accidentally bends the note a little bit, it'll start to track poorly and give those little sort of buzzes and weird distortion effects, which give it that kind of lo-fi robotic sound, which I think sounds really neat in those ambient places. Yep. And so, as you mentioned, I like um, robots. <laughs> we love, we love yeah. robots. Uh, as you mentioned that the whammy can go up and it can also go down. So um, why don't we check out uh, another example where the, uh, the whammy is actually going down. Um, and this is from the Kill Devil Falls uh, from uh, July 31st, uh, 2015. So in that example, Trey actually would have been playing the higher note that you hear, right? And then that lower kind of bassy note is actually what the the whammy is generating. Right. So the whammy has the whammy can do it can do it in two ways. You, you either use the side with the pedal rocker, which allows you to turn your signal into the sig- into an octave up or two octaves up, an octave down or two octaves down, or you use the left side of the pedal, which is a harmonizer, which gives you both your signal and the other note that it's generating. So in that case, Trey was using the harmonizer and getting his signal plus the octave down signal, which kind of gives you that, it almost has a little bit of an organ effect to it, right? Because you're getting, it sounds like you're getting that extra harmonic like an organ would give. Jerry was actually big on this sound too, particularly like a lot of that 77 stuff. If you listen to a lot of, 
Uh, if you listen to Cornell 77, you'll hear a lot of that, that octave down sound. So then tell us Very about cool. this, um, this third clip that we have showcasing the whammy uh, that we're going to hear this, this light from 2015 um, and what we should be listening to uh, with respect to the whammy harmonizer. Right. So this is so this is the harmonizer. So it'll it'll harmonize with you an octave up or an octave down, or it'll take a whole bunch of other intervals. So it can go up a second or up a fourth or up a fifth or down a fifth or down a fourth. Um, or it'll do I think it'll do flat nines and all kinds of other weird a couple of other weird, really dissonant sounding um, uh, harmonies. Uh, in this case, I think. I think it's doing like a fourth up or a fifth up. What's cool about that is that some of the notes are in the key that the rest of the band is kind of playing around and some of them are not. So he's doing the, he's getting this harmonizer effect and it's, 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 it can sound very consonant in one second and then the next second can turn around and sound really kind of dissonant and weird. And this is another one of those sounds that I had heard for, a long time and never quite understood what was going on until I until I sat down with a whammy pedal and kind of played around with it for a while and said, oh, that's what that is. I like dissonant and weird, and uh, <laughs> that's a great clip. Um, and now I know what makes that sound that I've, I've been enjoying for a while. So that's very cool. That, that's a great sound. You'll hear that a lot. Oftentimes, um, the octave up effect as well. Towards the end of a jam, you know, there's a minute or two left of a very long kind of spacious jam. And just as like a little tag on the end to sort of give us a little you know, kind of decrescendo, like a way to sort of exit the song. It'll kind of get into that space and give you a little of that kind of weird robot sounding dissonance. I, I think it's a great sound. Yeah, uh, I'm a big fan. I just had no idea what it was before. Cool. So let's um let's move on to a new effect and we'll talk about the boomerang uh, pedal and the boomerang is a uh, it's a phrase sampler um, and maybe uh, Ryan you can explain to uh, everybody what exactly what the boomerang does. Yeah, so the boomerang this has become really popular in the last ten or more years to have pedals that will sample um, passages that you've played on the guitar and then you know play them back for you or played on any instrument you know you can put plug any instrument into them and you had a lot of um, you know, guys like Keller Williams who would use samplers to create a whole, you know, turn his, you know, just play by himself, but turn it into a whole bunch of different sounds happening on stage at the same time. Um, they, uh, Trey used it for a lot of, in, in kind of a lot of different ways over the years. More recently, uh, he's used it in, in kind of much more mellow ways, ways that you wouldn't even necessarily know were happening. He'll hit a harmonic or two and let them ring out. And then the, the, the boomerang sampler gives him the ability to then reverse them. And then he'll kind of play them back in reverse and kind of give you this weird kind of ambient ethereal sound. Sometimes it would, it could be very easy to confuse for a keyboard sound. Um, but it's really just to add 
you know, another layer. So a, a four piece band suddenly sounds like five or even six people sometimes. Um, since that, since the boomerang, you know, I feel like that was sort of at the leading edge of the, of the sampler kind of movement for guitar players. Trey picked his up in 2000, I believe. Um, and it's it's been a very consistent part of his rig. Um, in addition to the, we're going to listen to now. If if you want to hear some really fun stuff that he does with the sampler uh, on the site, and I think on my Twitter feed as well, you can listen to some really great stuff that he did on his last solo tour with the acoustic guitar that he then sampled. I think he used some of these octave effects as well and played along with them so that he could sit there on stage by himself and kind of give himself guitar accompaniment at the same time. Yeah, that stuff was uh, quite cool. And uh, I happen to know, uh, last time I saw the John T, Caton Solenberger was using one of these on stage, and he was doing some cool stuff with it. Uh, it it's a kind of a pretty complicated piece of equipment just from looks of it. It looks like he can do a lot of different things. So that what we're looking at, we're going to hear just like kind of one example of what he can do. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. So it, there's there are a lot of different things you can do with it. It's basically, I mean, this is a you know this this piece of hardware can take like software updates and stuff it's it's a very it's a pretty sophisticated uh piece of equipment i think probably based largely on you know it's not that different than digital delay technology right it's recording a sample and giving it back to you it's just kind of the the way it does it the things it does and particularly for the boomerang the length of the sample it was capable of holding that was kind of the the real innovation there um in this particular instance trey is using the uh he's using it uh, for a reverse lead live, which is a really neat effect. This was something that, uh, it's a very sixties effect. And maybe we can talk about that a little bit on the other side of the clip, but basically what you're going to hear is he's playing into the boomerang sampler, which is then waiting a few seconds after he plays each note, turning them around and giving them back to out of the speaker backwards. So all the note envelopes happen in reverse. So the attack is at the end rather than at the beginning. And, and you'll hear that effect here when we listen to this. Well, let's play it. Right, so I think I think um, the, some of the most famous earlier early examples. Uh, Jimi Hendrix was a big fan of this effect. You can hear it on a couple of his tracks. I think most prominently, you can hear it on "Castles Made of Sand." Um, throughout the song, you will hear some reverse. Uh, uh, some reverse tape. So, so what they would do back in the day is record everything forward and then literally take the tape, cut it at both ends and turn it around backwards. So you had a lot less control over it, certainly than you do now. But for that, that song has some great examples of it. If you listen to particularly the guitar solo, um, but you can also hear it on the, um, there's several tracks on revolver, uh, the Beatles record where you hear that. I think I'm only sleeping is one of them. Um, so if you give a listen, you'll hear that kind of familiar reverse, reverse tape sound is what I think they would have called it back. back then, wasn't it? Oh yeah, that could be right. Yeah. Um, but, but so, okay. So this is all in a box alive on stage though. And, right. Um, that's pretty rad. Actually. Right. It's very strange because it, <laughs> it, it necessarily, the, the boomerang has to decide how long to let you play before turning the sample 
people around and then sending it back out, which is sort of the weird, that's kind of one of the weird parts about it. I'm not exactly sure how it decides that, how, how long to let you go on. It does that um, but, kind of make part of the art of it playing just the right length phrases or phrases that'll fit in the window? Yeah, I'm not sure how it works on his. I have the Boomerang 3, which does the same thing. And, and you do have to be careful about that. You, you have to think about the window and how long it's going to go on. You can hear in there that Trey is using a lot of hammer-ons and pull-offs rather than a lot of pick attack, which is which is sort of interesting, too. I hadn't noticed that until we just, just listened to it just now. So you can still hear that sort of backwards pick attack where the pick attack is at the end of the note. But a lot of it is kind of hammer-on pull-off, which just kind of gives you this almost vertigo kind of feeling this unmoored feeling right where it's all just like where's 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 beat one you know kind of like that yeah well and and, and in addition to that you can't hear what you're playing as you're playing it um you have to kind of have a little bit of trust that the the phrase that you play uh a is melodically going to work out but then b when it comes back to you is going to sound okay as well that's right. When he's playing, he hears silence. And so you do have to get a lot of practice, uh, you know, for, for the, he's hearing, what he's hearing is what he played seconds earlier. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now uh, we talked a little bit about um, boomerang versus digital delay. And it's important to, to know one, one other way that a lot of people may have been familiar with the boomerang uh, and correct me if I'm wrong on this um, is the, um, uh, the, the loops that Trey used to do with the, the whammy as well. Uh, and I'll, I'll do a poor job of seeing that where he kind of did like, meow, 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 um, to, to sample that and play it back, uh, as a, as a loop. Right. Is, am I, am I getting that right? Yeah. So that, that's what I call the whale trail sound that that sort of whale song sound. Um, and that, that is a good, that's a good impersonation of it. And, um, there was a while when that sound was so popular that people were bringing little inflatable, uh, whales to shows because they wanted to hear the whale trail. Uh, Trey has actually used that. He has created that sound on a whole host of different devices. So that, that sound first started appearing sometime in the mid nineties, I believe. And, uh, he didn't have a boomerang at the time. The boomerang was not, uh, was not yet in production. So I think he's, I think at the time he was doing that with the DM 2000, uh, the delay, you know, I think we're going to talk about that, uh, in a moment here, but, and then when, uh, so I think he did it with the DM 2000 cause all your, I mean, any, any delay can really do this as long as you can set the feedback to infinity, meaning so on delays, there are two controls, there's feedback and delay time. Delay time tells you how long in between repeats and feedback tells you how long you want the repeats to go on for. If you take the DM 2000 and set the feedback to infinity, those repeats will go on forever. So if you're just going to play one or two of those whale trails, they'll just keep repeating on and on. And it sort of sounds a bit like he's looped it, but really he just has a delay with the feedback cranked. Uh, you saw a similar, he, I know he did it um, in one of those gear explainers he did in 3.0, one of those videos, he does the whale trail using his uh, TC Electronics Nova repeater delay. And I know that in some of the shows in the last year or two, he's done a version of the whale trail using the Moog analog delay. Okay. Okay. So that's um, probably a good segue into the the DM2000, which is a digital delay unit, as you mentioned. And that's been in his rig for a very long time, right? Yes. This is a, it's a, it's an eighties delay unit that he's had forever. Um, Using it 
my my impression is that he's using it less these days. Um, th- th- this is a uh, but it, it has all the same kind of it has the same kind of controls we just talked about feedback, delay time, and then there's some modulation which allows you to kind of get some chorusing. Um, but uh, why don't we listen to the clip? We can talk about it on the other side. So one other example that we want to give you on the DM2000, you heard a little bit there on that uh, Carini from Amsterdam 97. Before we talk about it, let's give another example um, that's that's pretty well known. Um, and there was a couple of different examples of this in the, the kind of 94, 95 uh, time frame where Trey was using it um, as opposed to kind of creating a very dissonant sound there, um, kind of a more uh, melodic, intricate playing along with himself um, type uh, t- type method. So um, let's listen to that from the uh, the Providence Bowie introduction. So interesting, those those two clips, you know, very different examples of what's happening on the DM2000. The first one is almost a kind of whale trail-like effect, right? It's that sort of repeating, sort of descending sound. I think what's happening there is a combination of the whammy and the DM2000. I think the whammy is maybe two octaves up, bending those notes. And then he's stacking them on top of each other with the feedback set to infinity. And if you listen to that, uh, is that the Carini? I think from uh, yeah from Amsterdam two seventeen ninety seven. If you listen to that, that sample goes on forever. I mean, for it sounds like he walks away from the guitar and and just lets it roll, and everybody plays along with it for just minutes. Um, it's 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 a lot, and it, it is very sort of dissonant and 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 kind of out there. It's a very kind of aggressive um, sound. The second one is the sort of classic digital delay sound to me with the, with the feedback. I think it starts off with the feedback a little lower and then it gradually, it sounds to me like it turns up a little bit over the course of the, um, over the course of the jam. If you, if you listen to that whole thing, what you'll hear is um, it, it towards the end, he turns the delay time down and so the space between the repeats gets smaller. And then as that happens, because of the way almost all delays work this way, there's very few that don't, the pitch starts to go up at the same rate, right? So it's just like, uh, 
you know, it's like if you play back a podcast at two times speed, everybody's voice is higher, right? And the same thing happens with the delay. As you turn that delay time down, the pitch goes up uh, along with it. But but otherwise, you're getting that really classic digital delay sound, which is a very pristine repeat. The way digital delays work is that they just they sample your signal to a memory bank, and then you know, as the clock tells the memory bank to spit it back out, it spits it back out. That's a very different uh, effect than you get with an analog delay, which it looks like Trey is kind of moving more towards over the last few years. He had that um, the way huge Superpus uh, for a while sitting on his rack, and now he's got the um, – before that, in fact, he had the, uh, the uh, full-tone tape delay, I believe. And, yeah, it's basically an Echoplex copy. Yeah, and then the um, – he had the Superpuss, and now he's got this Moog uh, M104M. Yeah, it's their it's their analog delay. It is probably the most sought after uh, analog delay pedal that that has ever been made. It really is a, a legendary piece of equipment. Very hard to find. Very expensive when you do find them. And you really notice the difference between. I think this is a good sort of contrast. That last clip where the digital delay can continue to repeat that signal over and over again without losing any quality at all. Uh, it, the, the last repeat is as pristine and hi-fi as the first repeat. Whereas with the analog delays, uh, you have something that uh, sort of gearheads kind of call bucket loss. But basically what happens is with an analog delay, that delay has a bunch of capacitors in it. And it's passing the signal from capacitor to capacitor, which is holding it. It's holding the signal inside the pedal until the clock tells it to spit it back out, right? They actually, they refer to these pedals often as bucket brigade delays or BBDs because it's like an old fire brigade passing a bucket from one person to the next. And, you know, the number of those capacitors that you have to store the signal and the sophistication of the clock chip determines how much uh, repeat time you get. I'm cribbing a lot of this from a, a white paper written by Strymon, which is a pedal company. You should check out their white paper on delay if you're very, very interested in this. Uh, it's got a lot of great stuff in it. But but what basically happens then is that, and you're going to hear this in the next clip where we're going to talk about, with the analog delay pedals, over time, a little bit of water spills out of the bucket at every pass, right? And so the longer delay times you use and the more feedback you use, uh, the signal gets less pristine and goes from very hi-fi to very low-fi. And you can actually use this for for gr very great effect. I mean, you can turn these pedals. If you turn the feedback amount all the way to infinity uh, and use very long delay times, they will just turn. They will they will create this wall of oscillating madness and and darkness and very strange sound that sounds nothing like a guitar because the signal has degraded so much over time that it no longer sounds like a guitar string being plucked it just sounds sort of like an analog noise and trey does i haven't i haven't seen an example of trey letting it go that far but i think in this next example you get a little bit of a taste for it you can hear the delay degrade each time it's played
that was rad. Um, uh, I, <laughs> this is the most inane statement I could make uh, after the that excellent explanation of what we were about to listen to, and then listen to that Baker's Dozen Lawn Boy clip was just <sighs> sucked everything out of me. That's I can only say that was rad. It's a really neat effect, and some some players will let it let it. Particularly the the, the sort of more ambient players, I think you can you could probably find some examples of, of people really letting that get out of control. In fact, when Moog released their uh, Moger Foger version of that pedal, which is a, a much smaller, much less expensive version of that pedal, they did a demo of it on their website, which I'm sure you can still find on YouTube. That that demos that oscillation, that 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 bucket decay, really getting getting out of control. So go go look that up if you want to hear it. More much more pronounced example that sounds right i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to find that and we'll we will tweet the link if we can find it we'll share it with everybody yeah so now we're going to move into um something that's not actually an effect pedal but more of a um uh just an actual sound effect um one of my favorites which is the the leslie speaker uh, and if you're not familiar with what a Leslie speaker is, um, definitely go up onto the internet, um, look up some YouTube videos and some pictures. You can see this, you've seen this behind tray for years. You also see it next to page, uh, in the, or it's, it's traditionally used for an organ, uh, in particular a Hammond organ. Um, but it's literally a speaker that spins around to create a Doppler effect, um, and it, there's a number of ways that we can do that. We'll cover a couple of them here. Um, but what's is, is there anything kind of unique or particular about the way that that Trey uses the Leslie? I think using the Leslie for guitar, it's not that common. I think this is another thing the Beatles did, which you know, you know, no surprises here. I think Trey looks to them for a lot of inspiration, both you know, tonally and and. Uh, and in composition and, and, and musically in general. Um, but Warren no, I, Haynes uh, also uses the Leslie quite a bit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, it's a great sound. Uh, you know, they the I think the clip we're using is from, uh, I think we have a clip from the Festival 8. And um, th- this is a perfect, this is really a spot-on recreation of the, w- of the way this uh, song, Keith Richards used this on the original recording of uh, Exile on Main Street for, for great effect. Beautiful. So can I ask you real quick, because I know a little bit about what a Leslie cabinet can do. And I know that, you know, organist has a little a speed switch uh, usually attached up to on his, by his keyboard. So he can just adjust the speed of the, the rotating speakers. Um, how is the how is Trey doing that if he's doing that? So he had uh, so for a long time, including I believe when that clip was recorded, I believe this is true of Festival Eight. Trey used an actual organ Leslie on stage, a big wooden box. I think right. it was ser- serviced by those guys Goff in Connecticut that service everybody's uh, organ and, and Leslie gear. Greg Allman, you know all those guys. Um, and he had this uh, big foot switch on the floor that said Trek Two, and somebody I believe actually bl- put black tape over part of the K, so it said Trey Two. Um, and it's a, it's a preamp 
it's it's a preamplifier that sits on the floor. It's a tube-based preamplifier. They're they're still making these. Uh, uh, I believe Goff is making these. Uh, they no longer make them with tube preamplifiers. They make them as solid-state preamplifiers. But that included um, a preamplifier boost switch and also a fast-slow switch, which I think is all the control you get is fast and slow. You may be able to tweak um, the speed of the rotors internally on the speaker, but when it comes to the switch, you get a fast speed and a slow speed. And the fast speed gives you that really watery, kind of beautiful liquid spinning sound that is just – there's nothing like it, you know, there's nothing like it. And the slower gives you more of a sort of a little bit more of a phaser sound. It's still incredibly unique because it's actually unlike stereo effects, which are trying to simulate stereo. A Leslie is actually in stereo because it, it's actual physics, right? The, the, the horn is spinning from side to side. So you're getting right, left, right, left. So you, most people who use them in professional settings will mic them on both sides. Uh, you have a lot of companies that are trying to build, um, stereo replications of this effect using digital simulation technology. And some of them do quite a good job. Uh, the H&K Rotosphere, the Strymon Lex, uh, but there is nothing like the real thing. Uh, in, in recent years, Trey has moved off of the um, that original big old wooden Leslie cabinet and, and, and started uh, bringing something called the Leslie G37 on tour with him, which is a um, it's a Leslie designed specifically for guitar. So it has a quarter inch input instead of that bizarre multi-pin input that used to come from the organs and go into the old Leslie's. Uh, it's, I think it's a much more sort of roadworthy. It looks like it's built from a kind of plastic or, or a, a plywood covered in Tolex. It's a, it's a much more, uh, robust, I think device. I imagine the, the servicing of the Leslie became, uh, just a kind of onerous task. So they switched to this, but, but the fact is that, um, I don't hear a lot of Leslie, uh, on stage anymore f f from Trey pages using it all the time, of course, for the, for the organ. But, uh, and if people have examples of him, um, of him using the Leslie in the last few years, I'd love to hear them. Please send them along. Yeah. Certainly not as much as he, um, used to a lot. It was heavily, heavily used, uh, back in the nineties. Um, uh, we don't have to throw to a clip, but if you want to go seek something out, something actually I was listening to today, if you check out the, um, Haley's Comet Jam from, uh, Binghamton, uh, to, uh, December 14th, 1995, uh, it gets heavy, heavy usage there. I think on the, actually the, the slower speed. Um, and one other cool little tidbit, uh, if you didn't know this, if you want to find a really neat usage of the Leslie historically is, um, the if you ever wondered where the ping sound comes from at the beginning of the song Echoes by Pink Floyd, that is a piano miked and run through a Leslie uh, to give it that same kind of effect, uh, which is just sort of otherworldly. Interesting. Yeah, it is a great it is a great sound. There's there really is nothing like it. Yeah, so let's um, let's kind of move into a related sound, which is also very kind of thick and, and watery and phasey, uh, but is all inside of the box, so to speak, and that's the Univibe. Uh, and Univibe being um, sort of originally made fam very famous by Jimi Hendrix, um, but let's look at how uh, how Trey's used that.
yeah so that's that's it's a it's a great effect and this is this is one of the one of the effects i was saying earlier that really when we look back you know th- this will be something that that is very strongly associated with Trey's playing over the years he's he's had one in the line for a long time um it, it back I, 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 as i understand it those cae switchers uh in in the old days when they were uh when they were delivering those, they would often deliver them with the uh, black cat vibe uh, rack space unit attached and also the black, the black cat tremolo. So they would kind of all come in a package together um, because those, those companies were connected or had, had connected players in them. Um, What's interesting is, you know, we were just saying how there's nothing quite like a Leslie. The funny thing about the unit vibe is that it was designed when it was originally designed, it was designed as a Leslie emulator. That's what it was supposed to do. Uh, it was supposed to give you that sort of swirling um, stereo kind of sound. Now you you can actually find them in stereo, but they they still they were considered at the time to to basically be a a poor Leslie substitute. They weren't they they didn't do a very good job, but but people loved them sort of in their own right, and they kind of took off in their own right. Hendrix was a very famous user of this pedal, probably the inspiration for for a lot of others. Robin Trower played this pedal. Uh, you talk you mentioned Pink Floyd earlier. You will hear a lot of this pedal um, on uh, Dark Side of the Moon. Um, David Gilmore was a big fan of this pedal, but it's, it's a really neat effect. It, it, it works in a similar way to the old school photo cell tremolos that you find in blackface amplifiers, which is that there are certain, uh, I don't know if they're capacitors or engineers would be able to help me, but it's some kind of this, this photo cell that will not allow a signal to pass through it when light shines on it. So there's a light inside so with the tremolos they would have a light inside this amplifier that would flicker on and off and as it did it would cut the signal out which is how you get that tremolo effect uh, 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 like that as the signal would dim as the light grew brighter and they use a very similar effect to use these i think the, the black cat that trey played for a long time is based on the exact same circuit as the original shinai univibe that hendrix used and it had these four photocells arranged around a light that would swirl around in a circle and as it did, each photocell would briefly stop transmitting the signal and give you that sort of throbbing, pulsing effect that you get from the from the classic uh, Univibe. Uh, and in recent years, Trey has actually switched from his Black Cat vibe. Uh, there was a brief period when they overlapped, but he has switched to an original uh, vintage Shinai Univibe from the 60s. These are also very hard pedals to come across, and when you do find them, uh, they are very expensive. So, um, would I be correct in thinking that he was using that to get that sound at like uh, the big Cypress sound check? Uh, that time frame. That would have been the Black Cat. Yeah, okay. he, he only he switched to the. These are very. You know, my understanding of the of the the Black Cat versus the Shinai is that they are virtually identical. I mean, they were, the Black Hat is really supposed to be an exact copy of the Shinai in terms of its guts internally. Um, but that would have been the Black Cat era. And you hear it throughout the 90s, throughout the 2000s. Um, recently, I feel like he's been using it, particularly since he picked up the Shinai, he's been using it very, very consistently. Uh, you hear it a little bit in that, what's the use? You can, you can hear that sort of pulsing, throbbing. He loves it for the with the tube screamers engaged you know that sort of distorted swirly uh phasey sound and i think this next clip we're going to listen to um 
he has it with the he's got it on with the distortion and he's also got the wah going so this is a very hendrix sound from uh from a free in uh it's the july 24th 2015 So we have one more effect that we want to talk about. Um, we talked about it a little bit earlier, and uh, I think it's worth noting that while it was uh, very quickly became probably one of the most popular effects that Trey uh, has used, um, it seems like he's also retired it, and that is the Mutron. Um, so what can you tell us about the Mutron? So uh, the, the pedal Trey plays is is a copy of the of the original mutron pedal um it's called the beagle trutron 3x uh and it came out in the last five or six or so years uh they actually just released mu is the company um that releases that pedal it sold out very quickly and they just released a sort of a much smaller pedal board friendly version of it uh which also sold out immediately this is a very popular effect because you know some very famous players have used it it's obviously very big and funk uh for bass players and guitar players alike it's also for uh clavinet players have been known to use it stevie wonder bootsy collins jerry was a huge mutron player um a lot of times he would use that octave pedal for which for jerry i think was the octave divider along with the mutron for that really outstanding quacky sound uh, frank zappa used one um so it gives you what it, what it basically does is take the <clears throat> input signal that you're sending the envelope of the signal that you're sending and use that as a proxy for your bass versus treble output right so it's it basically acts as a wah which allows you know you to allow more it allows you to put more bass or treble through to the amplifier depending on what position the wah is in well instead of using your foot to control it the mutron just looks at the envelope of your signal and uses that so at the beginning of the signal you, you know if you you think about the way uh, if you've ever looked at like pro tools or something it shows you the way uh, a note looks right which it starts out small, gets bigger, peaks in the middle, and then shrinks back, right? And that's basically the, the envelope filter reads that signal. And the classic envelope filter sound gives you basically bass at the beginning. And then as the signal in increases in volume, opens up the filter, and you start to hear a lot more treble for that quack, quack, like a wah pedal. What they can also do, what, what the Mutron was able to do, was do the same thing except in reverse. So it would start with a, it would start with the treble wide open, and then as the envelope of the signal gets bigger, it would allow more bass through. So instead of giving you a wah, it would give you like an ow, ow kind of sound. And that's the sound we're going to listen to now. I think most people are probably familiar with the classic envelope filter auto wah sound. This is kind of the reverse of that.
Oh man, it just it, it it brings me to that Cornell dancing in the streets. It's the same thing, right? Yep, that's that very yeah. same sound. Yeah, yeah that, 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 that laser sound. Yep, exactly. It's it's very unique and it really, I mean, you could tell it sort of pushes Trey in a kind of different direction with his playing there too. Those really tight, concise notes, quick phrases to just really take advantage of that, you know, what, what that pedal's doing. We want to uh, show the opposite of that, which is probably the more traditional usage of the Mutron. And um, even for Jerry, that probably the way that he used it the most frequently, which was the um, uh, sort of forward or classic auto wah sound of the, un- of the, the envelope filter. Um, and so let's actually listen to something that's very relevant, which was uh, Trey using that the same way that Jerry would have uh, on Estimated Profit. That's such a classic tone, and you you would have heard that on Shakedown Street, right? And uh, Superstition, and uh, probably a lot of funkadelic songs and stuff like that. I mean, that's like um, that that tone should be in the in the canon of of rock and roll, right? Absolutely, and and you know, there's there are Jerry is very very closely associated with that pedal. You know, when when uh, when Robert Keeley came out with his version of the of the Mutron called the uh, Neutrino, which is the one that I use, uh, he he described it as giving you that Jerry in a box sound because that's really, I mean, if you get that filter dialed in right, uh, with you know the gain set just right, and particularly with sometimes with the octave pedal too, I mean, you really it, it is that classic Garcia sound, and it's it's just a beautiful beautiful sound. Wow. Well, we've covered a, an incredible amount of ground tonight. Um, Ryan, thank you for this comprehensive look at, at Trey's uh, guitar rig. Um, you know, all the, the work that you put into uh, to finding some great uh, example clips for us to listen to. Anything else that you wanted to, to add before we uh, part ways here? Uh, I just think if you are if you're a if you're a gearhead, uh, if you're a if you're a guitar effects person, uh, there's no better time to be following what's going on with this with this band with Trey with with everyone really. I mean the 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 number of different sounds that they bring to the stage now is more than they ever have before. The the different textures that they can bring now is more than they ever have before. I think you saw that showcase throughout the Baker's Dozen run and really throughout summer 2017. Paige had at one point I, I was tweeting about this. I counted four or five synthesizers on stage with them, including the guitar uh, and a bunch of analog synthesizers. Trey has really dialed in all these various different effects and sounds, and it really, it, I think it's fun. It's it's. Uh, it's a way to sort of take a break from, you know, the more, um, the notier type of playing, which is also great, but it's nice to sort of take a, um, to be able to take some pauses and move away from that and, and just create a lot of, you know, really interesting and beautiful textures, which is, is really a lot of my favorite, uh, kind of fish, the, the magna ball drive-in jam, that kind of stuff. You know, I think they did a lot of that style of jamming, uh, in summer 2017 at the Baker's dozen and otherwise these consistent 20, 25 minute jams, you know, a lot of which, not all of them, but a lot of them based on their ability to just create all these really interesting textures and sounds. So it's, uh, 
it's a fun time to be listening. You know, they've, they've got my attention. Yeah. You know, I've heard it said recently that, um, we're living in sort of the golden age of guitar pedals right now. Uh, I, I know it's true for, you know, myself and all the players that I know, um, in terms of just exploration and finding new gear. And it certainly seems like Trey has, uh, has the bug has bitten him in, in the same way to, uh, to find some of these new sounds. Um, so thanks again, uh, Ryan, once again, I think everybody can find, uh, you at, uh, at, Trey's Guitar Rig on Twitter, www.treysguitarrig.com. And of course, you can find us on the web at hfpod.com. Hit us up on Twitter at hfpod. Um, send us an email, helpingfriendlypodcast at gmail.com if you have any feedback for us. Um, please do uh, go to iTunes and leave us a review and, and hit that subscribe button if you haven't already and, and maybe tell a couple of friends about it. Uh, we also do have t-shirts uh, if you if you want to tell the world that you're a proud listener of the helping friendly podcast. Um, hit us up on Twitter for that link. We can point you in the right direction. Uh, they are beautiful. They are comfortable. I'm wearing one of them right now. So hashtag merch, uh, we buy into our own stuff here and, um, we will, uh, see you, uh, in the next couple of weeks for a couple of more really exciting episodes. We've got a lot of great stuff lined up for you this fall, uh, leading up towards the new year's run. Uh, so thanks everybody. Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.